Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 46, verses 28 through 34. This is the word of God. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He, Joseph, presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Thank you, Melissa. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come before you this wonderful day. We thank you for... Your word, we ask that you will enlighten our hearts and minds to understand your word this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What Melissa read just moments ago was the beginning of our story for today. Now, every culture, every people loves to tell a story. Stories are what define us. They don't simply entertain us, but as a people, they often define who we are. They explain to us who we are, where we came from. As Americans, we tell stories about the founding. We tell stories about Thanksgiving. And this week, we celebrate Thanksgiving in remembrance of the gratitude we have for the many blessings we have in this country. We tell stories about George Washington, John Adams, and others throughout history. We like to tell heroic stories of great battles that we won. Uh, Many of you are old enough to have heard stories of the Second World War in which You had people there, uh, relatives who served and perhaps died in foreign lands to defend our country. And every culture tells stories in different ways. Sometimes we tell stories because we like the stories. Sometimes we avoid stories that we don't like. For example, soon after the Second World War in Japan, when they told stories about the Second World War, their stories was basically, well, we don't know what happened. We're pretty much minding our own business when Americans came and dropped bombs on us. We never really understood what happened. But as Americans, we do the same thing with the 19th century slavery. We act like that didn't happen. These stories define who we are. And so we have to think about these stories. Now, we today tell stories through movies and and video and streaming. And often the stories aren't that good. In years past, before streaming video, we had books. And people used to read books to see what the stories were. Before books... They would sit around campfires, sit around the dinner table, and tell stories one to each other. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, are a storytelling people. Now, by story, we don't mean that it's not true. Some elements may be embellished at different times in our stories. 
and sometimes they're even developed to be mythological in some sense. The Greeks had their myths that defined who they were. But the Jews also told stories. And the one great historical story they told themselves was what? It was the Exodus. It was the Exodus as the Jews were taken by God out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. Now, we know this story. We've heard this since we were children. We went through the book of Exodus in this church not many years ago. And you know the story is God took the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the land of Sinai and after 40 years into the promised land. While in Sinai, they told, uh, we received, Moses received the law. And when he did, there's a commandment that we're to obey the Sabbath. At the beginning, they said, we obey the Sabbath because on the seventh day, God rested when he created in the creation week. But as you go through the end, you come to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and there the same commandment to obey the Sabbath now has a different rationale. And the rationale for it then is because you're no longer slaves. Obey the Sabbath. Take a day of rest because you're no longer a slave in Egypt. And so in the Hebrew mind, they're always thinking about that story as a defining story as to who they are. And that becomes for them today even their defining story. But how did they get to where they were in Egypt? Well, here as we've gone through Genesis in these last few chapters, we've seen now how the Israelites found their way down into Egypt. And we come to this passage, we see them now making their entrance into Egypt. But I want to remind you of just a couple of things before we kind of head into this story. First, there are four things which kind of define uh, distinctives of what makes a Jew. In the first century, with Jesus, his disciples, what was the Jewish mindset at the time? First is the temple. That's what defined them, was the temple. That's where God resided before that, of course. There was a tabernacle. So we have the tabernacle and the temple. That's number one. The second thing is Torah, the law. God in Sinai gave them the law. We see that in Exodus. But the other two elements we see in these passages today, the temple and Torah would come later. But two other things are added to this. One is the land. God promised to the Israelites their land. They would have this land as their land. But now we see Joseph having left it and Jacob and the brothers all now coming down to Egypt, leaving behind the land that God had promised to them and that God had given to them. They're leaving it behind. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is their racial and national identity. They were a family. And that family is to stay as a family. This racial identity mattered to them. Now, it is true throughout Jewish history, there was ways for some outside the family to kind of enter into the covenant or those who are in to leave it. And there's some blurring on the edges. But for the most part, the Jewish people, the Israelites knew they were a family and that mattered. That story begins, and I just want to hit a few points back in Genesis chapter 12 because we're now entering the point in Genesis where it's beginning to tie up together. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And so we have Abraham as the father of them all. In chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the beginning of this covenant that God has now made with Abraham and 
his descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and all the brothers. So that's what's driving the story so far. This same covenant is renewed and elaborated on in chapter 15. And the, first, uh, and the verse is there, beginning in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, and a turtle dove and young pigeons. And Abraham went and brought them. So Abraham's wondering, okay, I got this grocery list of items you want, God, what are we doing? And then he says, cut them in half and lay each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey down, uh, came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and dark, great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now Abraham is told what's going on. Your descendants will leave this land. This is still your land, but they will leave it. They will sojourn for 400 years. And that's where we're at now beginning uh, in our passage today. They're beginning this sojourn. The same story continues in chapter 17, and we won't read all of this. But it's a reminder that there's a covenant that God has made. I will make you a great nation. I will give you a land. You'll be a great people. And you, and this is the key part, you and your family will be a blessing to all nations. The promise of how God blesses all people comes through Abraham's family. And now we know as the story continues throughout the Old Testament, it is as God sends Christ as part of that family, as it goes on down through the lineage, Christ comes and is that Messiah. That's how God uses the Abraham family to bless all nations. So we come to chapter 46. And while Jews today often look at the time in Egypt, the Exodus, as a painful time, at this point in history, they're not. Now remember what's going on. There's just a few things we want to see in verse, uh, chapter 45, verses 4 to 11, just to kind of catch us up on this story. Joseph and his brothers uh, had met. Joseph had sent his brothers back to get his father, Jacob, and to tell Jacob to come on back down. And Jacob learns at this point that Joseph is still alive. Now, this is an amazing moment in the story. Joseph, Jacob thought, had been dead. Dead for 22 years. Jacob, in his life, had to come to adopt the idea that his son Joseph was gone, was dead. And we see this plan beginning to develop. But then we see Joseph, Jacob learns, is still alive. And Jacob now makes his way with his brothers down into Egypt. We come to chapter 46. So Israel, which is Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, 
For there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now Jacob, who had heard these stories around the fire, around the dinner table for all these years, from his father Isaac, who got them from his father Abraham, he had shared these stories of God making a promise that you will be a great nation. You and your family will be a great nation. You will possess this land. God now again confirms to Jacob that this is how we get there. We make you a great nation by sending you down to Egypt. And so this big story, as we see, begins with the promise that God made to Abraham. And it continues, the plan continues, with this sanctification of Jacob. Jacob needed to be prepared for who he was going to be. And so Jacob's life, we've seen, has been very hard. He uh, met a girl he loved, Rachel, the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. And he asked Laban, her father, if he could marry her. And Laban said, sure, just work for me seven years. And so Jacob did work for seven years. And at the end, he finds out that he only earned her older sister, Leah. And Jacob is crestfallen by this and said, you promised me Rachel. You gave me Leah. Work seven more years and you shall have Rachel also. So he did. Now he has Leah and Rachel. They have children. Now Jacob's children, as you know, we've seen, are a a rough bunch of brothers, 12 of them. Uh, Maybe not Joseph, but the other brothers are rather rough. They're particularly harsh on Joseph. Jacob, as we see, has led a very difficult and hard life. He finds himself now down in Egypt, not where he thought his family would be raised. We see it's also... God's plan protected through the suffering of Joseph. You look at the life of Joseph. He was a young man, a rather arrogant young man, perhaps, who talked about how God was blessing him. He wore that coat his father gave him, the coat of many colors that we've talked about. It was really a coat of, of honor, a coat of position, of prestige. And his brothers, resentful of that, took Joseph. They then captured him. They abused him. They sold him to the Midianites, who then carried him down to Egypt. He was taken down to Egypt where he found himself in the house of Potiphar, where Potiphar's wife then comes and tempts him. And then because Joseph refuses, he's accused of assault. So now he's thrown in prison. And while in prison, he meets a couple of other fellows. And when they get out, he says, remember me, tell the Pharaoh, remember me. And, he, and they don't. And so Jacob is now not only in prison, but forgotten. And it takes time before he gets out of this mess that he's found himself into. And throughout Joseph's life, he's got to be wondering, what is God's plan through all of this? Why am I going through all of this? But we see now at this point in the story that there's a reason for it. And Joseph, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, tells his brothers, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. It's not you that sent me down to Egypt, but it was God that sent me down to Egypt so that I could provide a way of escape from this famine for you, my brothers. So God all along had this plan, but throughout Joseph's life, he would have not known what that plan was. Why am I going through these circumstances? So they're now down in Egypt. Now, here's a key point. They're in Egypt, but Egypt, of course, is not the goal. It's where they're at now, but that's not the goal. In all of our lives, in some sense, we can think that we also live in in Egypt. We're not home. Our final destination is with Christ in the kingdom. That's some distant time away. But where we're out now is, in some sense, like in Egypt. Now, for some of you, it may be very good. For others, it may not be. And that's how the Jews spent their 400 years in Egypt. 
At the beginning, it was very good, as we will see. At the end, it wasn't. But Egypt is not the goal. There's a home that God has promised, and that's where they're to go. Now, in chapter 46, verse 28, we see this story beginning to develop, and we see four benefits in this passage to their time in Egypt. Why were the Israelites sent to Egypt? Number one, they were united as a family in verse 28. And he had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. So Jacob and the brothers make their way south. They get to the land of Goshen, which is about 60 miles northeast of, of, uh, of, uh, of, of where the Pharaoh was uh, in what is now Cairo. But uh, they've made their way down there, coming down from Israel. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And Joseph presented himself to Jacob and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Now, as the story is being told, you can only imagine the emotion of this. Joseph had been taken from his father, Jacob. Joseph spent 22 years away from his father, his brothers, his family, his land, his people, all that he knew. Jacob thought his son was dead. Remember that story just a few years ago uh, came out, a, a, a girl named J.C. Duggar. She was kidnapped when she was 11 years old back in 1991. She spent 18 years imprisoned, basically, by her kidnapper in a garage behind the house, forced to give birth to several children. She was kept prisoner there for 18 years. Her mother at some point, having to believe that her daughter had now to be dead. There was a story of a kidnapping. There was something on video that you can see. But what happened to her? She's gone. And then she returns. Imagine the joy that her mother must have felt 18 years later when her daughter returns for the first time. It must have been an overwhelming moment. And that's what Jacob is now going through as he meets the son, Joseph, again, that he had lost. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are alive. And Joseph said to his brothers, well, at that point, we see them now reunited. And having been reunited, there's this great emotional moment. This is what unites his family again. This family had been separated because the brothers sold Joseph off. They had been separated because of their sin, because of their uh, sin against Joseph, this had driven a wedge between Jacob, the father, and the brothers. The brothers always knew this had happened. But now, for the first time, this family finds itself united again. This is the first step in God's plan. The second step, we see them preserved as a nation, beginning in verse 31. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who are in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And then he says, and when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers. And why do we tell this story? Because in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph says, this is how we get you into the land of Goshen. You come to the land of Goshen, you plant yourself here, and I will take you back and meet Pharaoh. 
and we will tell Pharaoh the truth that you're shepherds. And when we do that, Joseph knows, Pharaoh will say, well, let them stay away from us because the Egyptians didn't like shepherds. Now, I don't know if any of you know shepherds. We don't normally have contact with shepherds or ranchers like that any longer. But you can imagine what it must have been like to be a shepherd in the first centuries or even a thousand years before that. Uh, They didn't bathe regularly. They spent their time with uh, animal sweating in the Middle Eastern desert. So it must not have been a pleasant thing even to go to bed with shepherds nearby. So the Egyptians didn't want them around. And like all of us, we're glad that the meatpacking plant isn't like just down the street, that it's somewhere else, that everything comes to us cellophane and wrapped up and nice and clean. And Pharaoh had the same desires. Have them stay away. And so that's the story. Now we continue on in chapter 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan and are now in the land of Goshen. And from among my, uh, his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. So Joseph gets five brothers, perhaps the more presentable ones, maybe spiffed them up a little bit, but still they're shepherds. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So the plan works out. Joseph and the brothers come and meet Pharaoh, and they say, we're shepherds. And Pharaoh says, how about you guys stay in Goshen, 60 miles away? You can have that land. And so this worked out. And we see now God providing for them, preserving them as a nation during this famine. While the famine was severe in Canaan and severe everywhere, including Egypt, as we will see, there was a farmable land in Goshen. Farmable land because the Nile still ran and could be irrigated. Verse 7 continues. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That's the first blessing. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few And evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Verse 10, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. We see Jacob comes into Pharaoh, blesses him the first time in. And the blessing in the Semitic world would have had this uh, value As an elder, and Jacob was, and that's perhaps why Pharaoh asked him how old you are. Jacob says, I'm 130 years old. As an elder, Jacob would have had a position of being able to bless others. And it would have been something of a prayer, not simply a hello or greeting, but something of, may God bring his blessings on you, Pharaoh. Because God is now using Pharaoh to bring his blessings on the people of Israel. Jacob and his descendants, his family. 
And so Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh asks him how old you are, and Jacob says, I'm 130 years old. Few and evil have been my years. Now, maybe Jacob is a little bit of a, a, a whining here a little bit, looking at the bad side of life. But his life was hard. And he's talking about the evil in his life, the suffering that he's endured. And a lot of times in our lives, we too endure suffering, but still know that God is working through us and has a plan. So Jacob says, I've had a hard life. And here's perhaps where he is reflecting back on the fact that his son Joseph had been taken away from him for all those years. He had thought his son had been killed by wild animals when he saw the bloody tunic brought back to him. He had suffered now famine in his homeland, Canaan, where God told him, this will be your land. And now Jacob sees it being wasted by a famine with uh, everything dying and, and people not able to sustain themselves. And so Jacob had a hard life here, and he tells that to Pharaoh. But before he leaves, he blesses Pharaoh a second time. But in this we see God using this time in Egypt to preserve this family. So they've been unified in Egypt, and they're being preserved in Egypt. In verse 11 and 12, we see they're also sheltered from the disaster. Verse 11, Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. So here they're now sheltered from this disaster, which is the famine. They're given a place in Goshen where they can raise their cattle, where they can raise their family, where they can be united as a family, protected from others, and now being able to feed themselves. God is using Joseph, using Pharaoh through Joseph, to protect his people, to provide for them. This is why they descend down into Egypt. Even though Jacob knew Canaan is our promised land, for now, it's good that we're in Egypt. It's good that we're down here because this is where God would have us. If you've seen the movie, The Grapes of Wrath, the uh, Oklahoma Dust Bowl and all that went with that, you get some sense of what it may have been like for the family of, of Israel here, the family of Jacob, to be in Canaan where they couldn't take care of themselves, where you felt the daily and imminent threat of hunger, of starvation and of death because you can't feed each other. You can't take care of your family. And then Jacob, through Joseph, finds a way that God has now made a way, that they are now being preserved as a nation. We see also they're sheltered from this disaster. Beginning in verse 13, we see they're favored above all others in the world. In verse 13, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. So Jacob, uh, Joseph had uh, filled the granaries during the seven fruitful years and was now selling that grain to sustain the people of Egypt, the Egyptians. They now had food, but in this now, Joseph was able to collect the money. So he's now selling the grain back to the people, and now Pharaoh's household is collecting all the money. And the story continues in verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, 
Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. You've got all our money. We spent all our money to buy the food you have. We have no more money. Verse 16, and Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So now Joseph, as a representative of the Pharaoh, is sustaining the people by giving them food in exchange for their livestock. So now Pharaoh has all the money and all the livestock. Verse 18, And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants of Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land may not be desolate. So now they come and say, you've got all our money, you've got all our livestock, all we have is our bodies and our land. If you feed us one more year, we will give you all our land, and we will give ourselves to you as Pharaoh's slaves. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. And the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made them servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh, provided, uh, that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So only the Egyptian priests kept their land. Everybody else had given their money, their cattle, their land, and their persons to Pharaoh in exchange for food during that time. Now, this passage, as you've seen, is a little bit strange in this sense. What are we to make of this? Is there some sort of uh, socialistic economic teaching that's coming out of this passage? And the answer is no, not at all. This is a story as it happened back in Egypt 3,800 years ago. It's not prescriptive for us today on how to take care of things, but notice what is happening. God is using Joseph to take care of these people, and they recognize that. As the story continues in verse 23, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give one-fifth, 20% to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, this is the Egyptians to Joseph, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day when this is written, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. The people recognized that Joseph had the foresight to provide for them during these famine years. They gladly gave their money, their cattle, their land themselves to Pharaoh because that's Joseph's plan uh, was to provide for them, and he did. And so this is as the story develops, and we see now this. And the people were grateful. And so there's times 
during hard times when people make great sacrifices where hard decisions are made. But that's what you do during hard times. You make those great sacrifices. And even throughout the history of the nations, peoples have had make, made great sacrifices during times of war, during times of famine, to sustain each other, to take care of each other. And that's what Joseph has now done for them. In this story, we see Joseph finding a way, making a way to protect his people. And it's good. It's good now that the uh, Israelites are in Egypt. The Israelites are in the land of Goshen, enjoying that land themselves, being fed from Pharaoh's coffers, his, his, uh, his granaries, being taken care of. While the Egyptians themselves are having to give up their land, give up their money, give up their cattle, the Israelites are keeping theirs and building their wealth and building their families and growing, as we see over 400 years, to a great nation. That was God's plan. And throughout all of that, Jacob knew that Canaan's our home. Joseph knew that as well. And I'm sure they taught that to all the other brothers. But as time passes, the Israelites began to feel like, no, Egypt's our home. We want to stay here. Do you remember what the Israelites said to Moses in the Exodus when they're stuck in Sinai? Why did you bring us out here to Sinai? We were perfectly happy as slaves in Egypt, and you brought us out to Sinai out of Egypt. We were happy there in Egypt. And all of us in our sense of being in Egypt need to remember that this isn't our home. Now, if you're doing well, your job is paying well, you've got money, you've got health, and things are going well for you, you might be thinking, I'm really enjoying this life, and I'm not really looking forward to the ending of this life. However, if you're with bad health, bad finances, or fearful, you may then be thinking more about the promise that God has made to us of a different home. And there's different passages. This tension that the Bible has here is, is really found in a couple of different passages. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes, and I'll just read a few verses to you here, the author of Ecclesiastes is telling those who have wealth, well, you do, enjoy God's blessing. And so in chapter 5, verse 18... Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. In all the toil with which one has toiled under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So on the one hand, for those that are doing well, God says you can enjoy that. It's a gift from God. Your health, the, the wealth, all of that is a gift from God. But there's more to it than that. In chapter 9, however, we continue the same uh, theme. Uh, verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Lay your, may your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. In other words, your garments always white. You don't have to work. You're doing well enough. You don't have to work anymore. You're in retirement. Ecclesiastes says, enjoy that. The same tension, however, becomes a problem when you think that's all there is, that that sense of being in Egypt is all there is. And so Jesus in chapter 6 of Matthew, Matthew six nineteen, says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. So Jesus looks at the same cultural world where some have wealth, where others don't. And he reminds them that if you have wealth, that's fine, but don't think that's all there is. Don't simply lay it for yourselves, wealth, because that's going to go away. And when you die, as they say, there's no hearse, there's no trailer behind a hearse. You leave it all here. The Pharaohs thought there were. They thought they could take it with them, and other cultures did as well. But we know you don't. That's why Jesus said, don't lay it for yourself, wealth here. Paul picks up on the same theme in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Now, when Paul writes the book of Philippians, he's writing to what was at this point going to be very soon the second largest city in all of Asia and Europe behind Rome. So Philippi was the central place in, in Asia now. This was an important place because this is where the Romans were now settling many peoples and it was growing dramatically. And so Paul writes to these people, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is theirs in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Paul warns the Philippian believers, don't think that your wealth here is all there is. There's more than that. Look beyond that. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is not here. We've got something more. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. Peter writes to believers and says, Our inheritance is not this world, is not this land. As good as it may be, there's something more beyond that. And even Revelation ends with the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Verses 1 to 4, Then I saw a new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with them. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. This is the grand story that God is telling us. That there is a plan that God has. Wherever we find ourselves, just as Jacob and his family found themselves in Egypt, that's not the goal. There's a promised land beyond that. As Christians today, we know that plan developed through Christ. The promise that God has a kingdom ready for us. And we as believers will one day enjoy the benefits of being in that kingdom. That's a promise God made to us. And so while we enjoy the fruit of our labors here today, while we enjoy the benefits of being in a modern society, we also know that this is not all there is. 
Now, the problem many Americans have is we think in very individualistic terms. We think about God's plan for our life. Now, I'm going to ask her to put up a slide, a piece of modern art. And as you look at this, you wonder, what is this? Well, let me tell you, this is the deliberate effort of an artist who carefully placed each color on the canvas at this point. God, in his way, is trying to create in us who we are to be. And as we look at it, we wonder, I don't see how God's using me. I don't understand what God's trying to do with me. We look at it and wonder, is this all there is? I don't see something more. But we know that there is. But in our modern individualistic world, we think in terms of who we are. Our culture is different from others because in ancient worlds, they thought in terms of their relationship to other institutions, to either the church, to their family, to the government. They were a citizen of a land. They were a part of a church. They were part of a clan. They were part of a family. And so every individual saw themselves as a part of a much bigger whole, and that's what mattered. The Israelites, to maintain their racial identity, were being told, you're part of a family. That's who you are. But as we look at ourselves, we think, you know, we want everything to be for us. And when people become Christians, they often think, well, what is God going to do for me? And there's a lot of preaching which says, well, God's going to make you happy and make you wealthy and make everything good for you. And when it doesn't happen, people are dismayed and they wonder, what is God's plan? But we need to understand that we're only part of a much bigger plan. Now, who knows what they're looking at on the screen above? The next slide will remind you. George Soros, the pointillist, carefully placed millions upon millions of dots on a canvas. And this is my daughter, Rachel, standing before this painting uh, Sunday afternoon, the, Lejean, uh, the Grand Lejat, and, and Rachel standing before it. And when you step back, you see it's 10 feet wide and 6 feet high. And now you see the master has a plan. We're part of a bigger plan here. And it's a plan that God is doing with us. We are part of a much bigger plan. It's not all only about us. It's about us being a part of God's plan. And we see our individual lives is still carefully cultivated by God as the master puts each point in our life. We see we're part of a bigger plan. And that's what God had for Jacob, the Israelites, in this passage And what he has for us as well to see that we are now God's people. Just as Jacob and his family was God's designated people, God would use them to bless the nations. And he did that through Jesus and his sacrifice. So we too now are incorporated into that grand picture, which is God's plan. And for that reason now, we too can be blessed. Let's stand as we pray. Our Father, as we Think now about your grand plan as we think now about how you have carefully cultivated our lives, placed each moment in our lives, whether it's good times or bad, whether it's blessings or sufferings. We know that all things work together for good to those who love you. We understand, Lord, that we are part of your grand picture, your grand design, 